Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. and welcome to the Industrial Alliance fourth quarter earnings results conference call. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. <clears throat> Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press the 1 followed by the 4 on your telephone. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star 0. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded on Thursday, February 11, 2021. I would now like to turn the conference over to Maria Nigbono, Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to our fourth quarter conference call. All our Q4 documents, including press release, slides for this conference call, MDNA, and supplementary information package are posted in the Investor Relations section of our website at ia.ca. This conference call is open to the financial community, the media, and the public. I remind you that the question period is reserved for financial analysts. A recording of this call will be available for one week starting this evening. The archive webcast will be available for 90 days, and a transcript will be available on our website in the next week. I draw your attention to the forward-looking statements at the end of the slide package. A detailed discussion of the company's risk is provided in our 2020 MDNA, available on CDAR and on our website. I will now turn the call over to Denis Ricard, President and CEO. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the call today. I will first introduce everyone attending the call on behalf of IE. Jacques Potvin, Chief Actuary and CFO. Mike Stickney, Chief Growth Officer and responsible, among other things, for our U.S. operations. Alain Bergeron, Chief Investment Officer. René Laflamme, in charge of individual insurance and annuities. Sean O'Brien, responsible of our mutual fund business and wealth management distribution affiliates. François Blais, in charge of our dealer services, special markets, and IO2 and home. And Eric Jobin, responsible of our group businesses. For the third consecutive quarter since the beginning of the pandemic, our Q4 results released this morning are solid thus demonstrating our resiliency, our agility, and the great commitment of our employees and distributors. I will start with a few comments about sales growth. Indeed, sales were remarkable during the fourth quarter, as well as during the year in general. Almost all business units had very strong sales results, leading to a 28% year-over-year increase in premium and deposits. Individual insurance sales were up 40% year-over-year, clearly demonstrating that with our strategy focused on the client and distributor experience, the Canadian insurance market is not mature for us. Wealth management sales were also noteworthy, with net fund inflows for SEC funds and mutual funds 
totaling nearly $800 million in Q4 alone. As a result of these much stronger than expected sales, we had to pay higher than expected commissions and sales bonuses during the fourth quarter. Taking into account these high sales and related expense of commissions and bonuses, profitability was good, which reported a core EPS of $1.60. Jacques will comment more on the earning drivers in a few moments. We also took a provision for the benefit of our employees during the fourth quarter. Indeed, as the pandemic and the ensuing lockdown efforts continue, we have decided to offer our employees additional temporary support measures. Another highlight of our Q4 results is our capital position. Our solvency ratio increased by five percentage points during the quarter and is very strong at 130%. In addition, our distinctive market protection is now the equivalent of an additional 10 percentage points, as mentioned on slide five. Moreover, as part of our annual review of our actuarial assumptions, we have proactively strengthened reserves in addition to establishing additional specific protection to counter some of the potential impact of the pandemic. With these solid foundations, we enter 2021 with, with confidence in our strategy and continued capacity to create value for our shareholders. Indeed, looking back at 2020, we've been able to appreciate the robustness of our business model and our continued earning power. Sales momentum has accelerated and is now very strong. 2020 core earnings were in line with our initial expectations. Finally, we, uh, we entered the end of the year with a solid capital position and several layers of protection in our reserves. We are therefore very well positioned to pursue our growth in 2021. For these reasons, based on what we know today of the pandemic and of the effectiveness of government measures, we have decided to reinstate guidance. In the past, we have always given precise guidance to the market and have often met or even beaten it. So we are pleased to be providing you with our outlook for 2021. Along with this new guidance, we've updated our core earnings definition to better reflect our recurring performance in line with the evolution in, of our business and changes in the macroeconomic environment. Indeed, certain items have become more important in recent years and should now be adjusted so that our core earnings are truly representative of our earning power and better aligned with other financial institutions' definitions. More particularly, as a result of our numerous acquisitions in recent years, including IAS in 2020, the amortization of acquisition-related intangibles is a growing charge that is non-representative of our recurring performance. Also, in the current low-interest environment, the gap between the rate prescribed by accounting standards for defined benefit pension plan and the expected return on our pension plan assets has widened. An adjustment for this item will better reflect our underlying performance. Jacques will further explain the revised core definition and present our guidance for 2021. On slide six, we will also have the opportunity to discuss it during our investor event to be held on March 10, starting at 9 a.m. We look forward to welcoming you virtually to this event. I will now let my comment on business growth 
Following Mike's remarks, Jacques will provide more information on our Q4 earnings and financial strength. On that note, I'll pass it over to Mike. Thank you, Denny, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Business growth during Q4 was robust in almost all business units, and we concluded with a very strong year for sales. Throughout 2020, by leveraging our strengths, that is, the diversification and power of distribution networks, our high-performance digital tools, and our competitive and comprehensive product offering, we have achieved very strong sales results quarter after quarter despite the pandemic. Please refer to slide eight as I comment on Q4 sales results by line of business. In individual insurance, sales totaled nearly 72 million for the fourth quarter, which constitutes an impressive 40% year-over-year increase. Several, several factors supported this growth, including the success of our new PAR product and YRT Universal Life Policy. Now, looking at group insurance, with the addition of a large number of new groups, the Employee Plans Division also recorded sales significantly higher than the same period last year. In the Dealer Services Division, despite shutdowns in some provinces, Sales totaled more than $248 million, up 3% from 2019. Sales in the special markets divisions were lower than last year, mainly due to the decline in travel insurance. In our U.S. operations, sales momentum remained good in individual insurance, with a 6% increase year-over-year. Year. In the dealer services division of our U.S. operations, sales totaled $246 million U.S. This is due to both organic growth and the addition of IS sales. Speaking of IS, the integration is progressing well, and we are confident that the benefits of synergies between IS and DAC and IA, IA's corporate services will materialize in 2021. Now, turning to slide nine for individual wealth management, guaranteed product sales continued to be excellent, totaling more than 247 million. Again, Segregated fund sales were very strong with gross sales of $883 million, up 39% year over year. We are still second in the Canadian industry for gross seg fund sales. In addition, we remain number one for net sales with more than $547 million for the quarter, more than double year over year. Moving to mutual funds, gross sales were up 34% year over year to $760 million. Net sales recorded inflows of more than $245 million, the strongest result since Q1 2013. This performance was supported by the contribution of our affiliate networks. As a result, the net inflow from seg funds and mutual funds combined was, a superior, was superior to $2 billion for the year. Now, turning to group savings and retirement sector, where sales were significantly higher than a year, year earlier due to the signing of new groups with substantial assets. Finally, direct written premiums in our PNC affiliate, IA Auto and Home, continued their steady growth and increased 13% year over year. Overall, these sales results pushed premiums and deposits up to nearly $4 billion for the fourth quarter, an increase of 28% year over year. As for assets under management and administration, they were favorably driven by net cash inflows and growth of financial markets to increase over the last 12 months by 4%. To conclude my remarks, I would like to draw your attention to slide 10, where you can see the full extent of our current sales momentum. 
Prior to the pandemic, sales results ranged from good to very strong. With the exception of a few sectors more directly affected by shutdowns and despite social distancing and lockdown measures, business growth continued to be strong and even accelerated in almost all our business units. We therefore start 2021 confident that by continuing to execute our growth strategy and focusing on our strength, sales momentum will continue. I will now turn it over to Jacques to comment on Q4 earnings and capital strength. Thank you, Mike, and good afternoon, everyone. Our good profitability in the fourth quarter ends the year well and demonstrates once again our financial strength and the resilience of our business model. Coming on slide 12, both reported and core EPS were $1.60 in Q4, which is a solid result in line with our growth objective. I would like to draw your attention to the most important items on slide 13, where you will find the key information regarding profitability for the quarter. First, as already mentioned, sales for the quarter and for the year were very strong. Therefore, more commission and sales bonuses than expected had to be paid during the quarter. This represents a loss of 8 cent EPS, and it explains part of the negative result for policyholder experience and strain in Q4. Policyholder experience was also affected by adverse mortality experience, mostly U.S. mortality resulting from the pandemic. On the other hand, Morbidity in individual insurance and long-term disability experience in group insurance were both favorable. Also, again this quarter, results were excellent at IE Auto and Home, our PNC subsidiary, with an experience gain of 11 cents EPS. Market-related impacts were favorable this quarter, resulting in a 9 cents EPS gain. As for income and capital, it was slightly above expectations, despite a provision for default for a corporate bond in the aerospace sector. On the tax side, an adjustment for prior years result in a gain of $0.08 EPS. Two other specific items are not worthy. First, as explained by Denis, an encore provision equivalent to $0.08 EPS was taken to cover non-recurrent measures to support employee well-being. The second specific items relate to software write-downs, resulting in a loss of four cents. Slide 14 presents the contribution of IES with integration costs and amortization of acquisition-related intangibles. When adjusted for these two items, the IES contribution was $0.05 cents in Q4, resulting in a $0.17 cents accretion in 2020. Q4 slightly lower results for IES can be explained by our decision to accelerate the integration. They also take into account a delay in realizing synergies as well as a temporary difference related to certain expenses incurred in the third quarter. Turning to slide 15, 
where you can see that the overall result of our year-end actuarial review and additional risk management initiative was a gain of $0.04 cents EPS. As expected, our regular annual review of assumptions result in a near-neutral impact. Indeed, indeed, favorable investment strategies and accrued investment gains allow us to offset proactive reserve strengthenings for mortality and policyholder behavior, as well as a reduction of 15 basis points of the URR. In addition, as mentioned last quarter, we took advantage of the favorable reinsurance environment to put new reinsurance agreements in place. At the same time, we established additional protections in the reserves to cover some of the potential negative impacts of the pandemic. Slide 16 describes these additional protections, which will absorb excess mortality and adverse policyholder behavior during the next years, and as a result, will protect future earnings. Let's now look at our financial strength on slide 17. Our solvency ratio stands strong at 130%. The 5 percentage point increases during Q4 results from the year-end review and risk management initiative we just discussed as well as from organic capital generation. Also, note that our market-related sensitivities have been updated and that the sensitivity of our ratio remains low. For more information, I refer you to slide 13 in the appendix of this slide deck. In addition, our distinctive market protection presented on slide 18 is currently worth more than the equivalent of 10 additional percentage points of solvency ratio. As for potential capital for deployment, it is now at 425 million. I will conclude my remarks with our outlook for 2021. As Denis already explained, based on our good performance in 2020 and our strong financial position, we decided to reinstate guidance for 2021. The new targets are based on an updated core earnings definition. Please refer to slide 19. We will continue to adjust for market-related impacts, assumption changes, management actions, and other unusual gains and losses. In fact, there are three changes to our definition that will make our core earnings more representative of our recurring operating performance. First, gain and loss in excess of 4 cents EPS for policyholder experience, strain, taxes, and investment income on capital will no longer be adjusted. Second, the amortization of acquisition-related intangible assets will be adjusted. The expected adjustment for 2021, detailed by acquisition, is presented on slide 26 in the appendix. Finally, an adjustment related to IE's pension plan will also be made, as explained on slide 20. Under the current accounting regime, 
Reported earnings are underestimated as a large portion is recognized only through other comprehensive income. The adjustment will cons consist of the difference between management expectation of the long-term return and the interest rate prescribed by the accounting standards to our pension plan assets. Based on this updated definition and on what we know today about the pandemic, government measures and their impacts, our guidance for 2021 is the following. Please refer to slide 21. We expect to generate core EPS between $7.60 and $8.20, the midpoint of which represent an increase of 11% over the 2020 result. Core ROE should be between 12.5 and 14%. Our target for strain is slightly improved, and we expect organic capital generation to remain strong which explains that we increased the midpoint target to 300 million. Slide 22 presents a comparison of core earnings using both the old and revised definitions. Operator, we will now take questions. Thank you. If you would like to register a question, please press the 1-4 on your telephone. You will hear a three-tone prompt to acknowledge your request. If your question has been answered and you would like to withdraw your registration, please press the 1 followed by the 3. One moment, please, for the first question. Our first question comes from Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital Markets. Please proceed. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, just with respect to your 2021 guidance, um, on slide 14, You've laid out some uh, good stuff with respect to the IAS acquisition. And I'm wondering if you might be able to share with us um, what would be the outlook for two items on that slide. Uh, really, the expected profit on Enforce, excluding integration costs, um, uh, what you've called core basis, it was $15.4 million in the quarter and what the integration costs after tax are um, in that 2021 guidance as well, because uh, they were 5.7 million in the fourth quarter of 2020. So um, any color you can shed on that, and then I have a follow-up, thanks. Uh, Tom Jacques speaking. Uh, I'm able, I have uh, one number of the two handy. Uh, the uh, integration expenses will be 10 cents an impact of 10 cent EPS that uh, will be non-core, but for the, the rest, actually, we're showing on that slide that we expect 39, 40, uh, between 39, 44 cents. I don't have the, the specific number for each item there. So uh, you will see actually in Q1 uh, when we will uh, provide uh, the rolling nine and the guidance, those information. So, um so we just have to kind of work backwards from the 39 to 44 cents to come up with really what would be the, uh, um, you know, the expected profit on the enforce. Uh, is that is that is that what we should do there? Uh, I think yes, that's the best way to approximate it. Uh, I mean, if we had to say what what what's the implied growth in 2020 
one over 2020 for the expected profit enforced, excluding integration costs for IAS. Uh, one thing uh, that complicated a little bit that, uh, Tom, is the fact that we will have a full year of IAS. Uh, this year we had uh, seven months and one week, so uh, this complicates uh, everything for the whole year, so that's why uh, I prefer not to give too much uh, number here because I don't have them with me. I don't want to uh, tell things that won't be right, but that's certainly a, a thing you have to factor in. Are you expecting... And there, there will the... also be seasonality between quarters as well. Yeah. Are you expecting... Uh, um... I assume there's some seasonality in second and third quarter are better. Uh, are you expecting, if we were look, to look at the fourth quarter of 2021 versus the fourth quarter of 2020, uh, how much would you think the expected profit on Enforce be increased, uh, uh, excluding integration costs in, embedded in your guidance? Maybe I can just frame it that way. Well, uh uh, it's Denis here. <clears throat> Sorry. I think, Tom, I mean, the uh, what we've got right now in terms of information um, is the slide 14. Uh, I think you should work on those numbers to try to, as you said, go back and, I mean, go the reverse way uh, to get the, some of the uh, other numbers. Uh, I mean, we don't, we have not actually the numbers quarter by quarter, and uh, I would suggest that you work, work backward here. Okay, thanks. And, and, and maybe and the other thing I would say is that, uh, when you look at the 11% increase of the uh, the guidance, uh, the mid guidance from one year to the other, uh, certainly when we look at it per geography, the U.S. is, is you know is uh, significantly larger than in Canada. Okay. Um, and then the second question is, um, why do you exclude pension costs from your uh, new definition of core? I mean, other companies have defined benefit plans, and they include the cost of those in their definition of core. So, why do you exclude them? Yeah, well, okay, it's Denis here. Um, interestingly, there are not that many in financial institutions still have uh, defined benefit pension plan. Uh, in fact, most of the, uh, I mean, the big banks and I would say mo most of the other, I mean, the other life codes, uh, they used to have some uh, years ago. Uh, they, they basically uh, are in a runoff mode right now, and so they have the offer DC DC plan. So it's not, a, it's not something material um, my uh, my um, my take on this for for those organizations you've got intact that still has one and if you look at uh, their mdna page 86 uh, you'll find exactly the same adjustment here and by the way i mean if you look at historically on page 20 um, of the uh, of the deck it's pretty clear that a few years ago i mean if we had shown the previous years previous to 2019 uh, the the difference between the um, the return on the pension plan, the expected return and the uh, accounting return was probably not that material. But as you can see, it has increased significantly uh, over the last few years. And the 2.7% discount rate that you know is forced on us by by the accounting standards, I mean, does not absolutely not represent the um, the expected return that we have in our portfolio of assets backing those those type of liabilities. And the difference between, in this example, in 2021, for example, 5.3% minus 2.7% is not recognized at all in the earnings of the organization. So there is an extra cost embedded in our earnings that is only recognized through the OCI. So uh, it's um, so now it's, it's getting material. So that's why we, um, 
we want to be comparable to what other organizations that do have pension plan, I mean, they do adjust, and we just want to be comparable. And Intech is the best example. Okay, thanks. Our next question comes from Gabriel Deschen with National Bank Financial. Please proceed. Good afternoon. Uh, a few quick ones here. Uh, the dividend, uh, I assume your payout ratio, you're basing that against the you know new definition of core earnings, and if so, in a theoretical world where you were allowed to increase your dividend, would you be doing so today? Or would your preference be to do that? Okay, well, actually, uh, yeah, obviously, if the uh, restriction is being lifted, we would be in a position to increase dividend. And you're basing your payout ratio uh, target range against this new definition of core earnings? It's, uh, it's uh, about the profit, uh, Gabriel. So it's uh, between 25 and 35% of the profit we're making. It's not necessarily related to the core, core ratio, uh, core, core earnings. So uh, uh, for the moment, we're, that, that's what we intend to do. So based on reported? Uh, yeah. Yeah, right now it's still, okay. it's still unreported at this point, yes. Okay, all right, great. Um, PNC, uh, I think the segment had a phenomenal year, $80 million bucks almost, a pre-tax, quadrupling, you know, what you guided to. Uh, it, I, I'm thinking it's hard to replicate that performance, but uh, maybe you see otherwise. Let me know. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? I mean, results are so good. I think I will let Francois comment on his incredible results. Yes, for sure. So indeed, the results were were quite uh, quite impressive in in 2020, uh, resulting for, for for two things from two things. Uh, for sure, uh, COVID affected behaviors uh, and downward uh, kilometers driven uh, in general. Oh, so that that has been quite positive. Uh, we also uh, took took measures to. Um, uh, about underwriting, probably a few few years before the market because of uh, these uh, art market conditions. So I guess it did has put us in 2020 in a, in a very, very, um, very good position. Uh, and we do expect that uh, with the, the the actual lockdowns that we still see, uh, that the the results should continue to be pretty good, but probably not to to the extent of what uh, what happened uh, in the in the past year. So would they be down or flat or, or what? Uh, I, uh, listen, Gabriel, um, the result that we had was uh, quite exceptional in 2020. Yes. And uh, so the our guidance is um, is based on a lower um, return on the um, IO2 and home. Perfect, thanks. And then my last question, the uh, what is it, $33 million of protection against uh, you know mortality swings next year? How, how, how did you get that? How did you come up with that number? I'm just trying to the thought process intri- intrigued me. Yeah, actually, we look at we Jacques speaking. Uh, we look at the loss we had uh, during the year. We also, when we shop for reinsurance, we also ask reinsurer to quote and to uh, isolate uh, what they expect for the COVID impact as well. So it provides us also uh, information to make up our mind. We also look at the current uh, trend. Okay, there, there's a couple of uh, of strain, uh, the, the the UK strain, the South Amer- uh, African strain, uh, the spike in cases. So we we did our best to try to come up with what we think will be the additional 
uh, expected costs coming from uh, from uh, the COVID. The good thing, though, is that the, that provision, as well as the one for labs, those uh, temporary pro those temporary provision, we will provide you full uh, disclosure every quarter, so you will be able to monitor uh, the usage at each, uh, at each quarter and what will remain into them. And we will see at next year end, uh, we will reevaluate re the situation uh, in regards of the situation. Thank you. Have a good rest of the week. Thank you. Our next question comes from Manny Grauman with Scotiabank. Please proceed. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, just a few questions on the 21 guidance. One, just in terms of the outlook for capital generation, uh, what's driving the, the increased uh, outlook there in terms of the ability to generate capital up to 325? Uh, hello, uh, Manny, Jacques speaking. Actually, two things. Uh, the main thing, IES, we've always, always mentioned it's capital light business uh, compared to the average of our businesses. And also in, uh, in the insurance, we're selling uh, more power product that uh, is less intense, capital intensive as well. So those are the things, and we have additional profit, uh, growing the profit. So that's why we're really confident to achieve a higher number. Okay, and then on a similar uh, plane, the the new core range of 760 to 820, what kind of assumptions uh, or what needs to happen to get to the higher end of, of that range? What's the what's the driving uh, that, or what would the, would the difference be to get to that higher end? Uh, I would say uh, quite simply, Jacques speaking again, uh, better experience than expected. We know for sure one thing, okay? We will uh, miss the boat on some of them. Some will be better, some will be worse, some we will be right on them. But at the end of the day, it will be uh, experience uh, better than expected. That's what will drive the profit. And in term, when you talk about experience, I mean specifically the impact of COVID or or is is that a, sort of a, a key factor for 2021 in your mind? Probably, you know, uh, the negative impact with the additional protection uh, we put in place, I'm very uh, comfortable that we will be able to face them. But when we look at the total impact for the year 2020, there's been some other, uh, I would say, positive impacts, some negative impact. As an example, I will use lapses in industrial insurance, both both in Canada and in the U.S. They've been they've been uh, positive overall for the portfolio, and I didn't recognize that uh, in the guidance. So there are chances that it. it that there, there will be a positive experience on some of them. It could be on economic, it could be on anything, but at the same time, behavior of clients, behavior of, of uh, distributor may change as well. So it's tough to call. So we're giving you our best shot and we will see what will happen. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes from Doug Young with Desjardins Capital Markets. Please proceed. Hi, good morning. Maybe, Jacques, I can start with just following up on the comment you just made. Um, and on page 15, uh, you know, what I wanted to kind of look at was the $236 million 
um, that you boosted related to LAPS. And we're noticing, I've noticed it across a lot of the, the different companies that LAPS experience has been negative and um, there's been some unusual activity, I guess, during the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about why you had to boost LAPS experience? I know you've had, you know, and the entire group has had to take LAPS charges over the last 10 years. You know, what is it now? And then can you kind of square that away with your comments that you just made that LAPS experience has been positive? Yeah, that's a good question. Good observation, Doug. Actually, uh, we conduct our study and uh, we uh, noticed two, two trends, two tiny trends that were starting, but uh, they would just grow over time. So uh, the T20 renewable rate as well as uh, the lab supported product ultimate lapse rate. So for the T20, uh, decided to put that to bed and say, okay, let's let's take the bullet uh, right away and uh, change the assumption. And about the the, the, the lab supported overall for the entire portfolio, what we see, what we saw in 2020 is really lower lab, lower laps almost everywhere. It's good, okay, for the portfolio. It, it's good because we had positive uh, experience on most every quarter last year. But for lab supported ultimate rate, it's not good. So we decided to recognize all that and adjust the assumption. That's really the, the mindset behind those uh, strengthening of reserve. And so you've dealt with both issues essentially. Is that correct? Exactly. And so, you know, if we we should see, like, to your other comment, like going forward, and this isn't recognizing your guidance, is that you, we should see as a result of these adjustments for both these products, you know, nil lapse experience or, or potentially favorable if you've actually padded it uh, extra. Uh, yeah, actually, that's that, that's what I want. Uh, I, I try to convey as a message is that if behavior of clients and uh, distributor is the same during uh, the the pandemic continue as it were in 2020, uh, we should expect uh, lapse experience gain. That's really where I'm sitting right now. But on those one, I I didn't want to recognize that because I'm not I'm not certain if. if those trends will last, will last, so we will see. Okay, so you took the pain, but you didn't take the benefit of it. Exactly. I'm conservative. <laughs> um, and, okay, so that, that makes a little more sense uh, to me. Then the second is the reinsurance transaction. Can you talk a bit about what you're giving up on this, on this transaction um, in terms of earnings? going forward, and was there any regulatory capital impact? Okay, uh, I will answer the last part first. Uh, regulatory capital, it's a 4% four per, four impact, so uh, close to 300 million. Uh, for the earnings, uh, for sure, uh, I mentioned in Q4, when you do such a deal, uh, you front-end margins, you front-end expected profit, you release capital because you no longer bear the risk. So by itself, if we look only at that transaction, that's exactly what happened. However, I tend to look at that uh, with the overall picture of uh, everything, all uh, basic change, management action that's been done by the investment team during 2020, uh, the additional provision uh, we put in place for COVID, and overall, uh, 
uh, I'm very pleased with uh, there's not that much change in regard of where the margin will flow in uh, in the near future or in the few or in later years. So that's really the the, the way we look at I look at it uh, overall. So there was an earnings that you gave up, but because of all the other adjustments, that kind of offsets that. Yeah. So the reinsurance, like I said, by itself, okay, it's a very positive ROE accretive transaction because we release a 4% of capital with front-end profit. We won't have that profit that will flow through in future years, but we had a profit, uh, and you saw that on the slide, uh, that 90, uh, 93 millions. So uh, by itself, it's a ROE accretive, but I want to make sure that uh, the conclusion that is drawn from the people is not to look only at that transaction, but look at the overall picture of what's been done. Actually, the expected profit, the growth of the APF for life insurance won't be jeopardized by, by all those stuff. It will be a good growth for next year. Okay, so you're not you're not disclosing what the earnings you're giving up is, though. No, it's competitive okay. information. Okay, I won't tell anybody, but that's fine. I'm just joking. Uh, the and then just lastly, the 100 million or the 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 96 million of additional protection you put aside, um, is this a PFAD or like how do, how do I think of where to slot that in and and the earnings emergence of this? Uh, the the way I, I I see them, okay, it's really expected additional losses that we expect for the next few years coming from COVID. They're a small part of margin but it's mainly expected additional costs we expect to have in the future coming from COVID. And there's no sense of how this gets released. It's really subjected to how your annual review of it then? No, actually, like I, I said earlier, uh, I really intend uh, there would be a slide every quarter. You will see, uh, you will see the, those, those uh, provisions evolve quarter by quarter, so you will see the usage at each quarter. Let's say that mortality, uh, if we go on slide, I believe it's uh, slide 16, we put $0.09 cents for Q1 of mortality. Let's say that we use only $0.05. Cents. I, I, I intend to carry forward what is not used, so it means that in Q2 we will have $0.11 cents to face mortality. If we have, uh, let's say, uh, $0.15 cents of mortality, uh, in Q2, I would deplete completely that that margin, and there would be a four cent loss. That's really the way it will uh, the way it will work. And if ever there's uh, still uh, a reserve at the end of the year, I will look at the situation about the, where the vaccines, what the the the, the 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 situation at the time, and we'll decide if we keep that uh, provision, if we have to add to it, or if we have to uh, to remove it. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from Mario Mendonca with TD Securities. Please proceed. Good afternoon. Uh, if we could go to uh, page 45 of your presentation where you referred to the strong growth in individual life sales in Canada. The 40% the growth obviously stands out, and the skeptic in me says be careful when when you see insurance sales of that magnitude in a mature industry like life insurance. So let me understand, of the 71.7 million, how much of that is the, the new YRT 
and whole life products. I think uh, Mario, it's Denis here. I uh, will leave uh, René to answer the question, but it's it's a fair question, uh, and I've I've said that in the past myself that you know if sales are are too uh, too important sometimes, and I've seen companies being very very aggressive and getting you know big sales. That is not our case here, and René will explain to you why is it that we 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 were able to generate such a loss without jeopardi jeopardizing our profit margin. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Denny. Uh, it, it's a great question. Um, we, um, we've um, experienced great success. Uh, of course, uh, the two new products uh, are part of that success. Um, we have made some um, uh, projection of our you know, anticipation of how much of those new projects we would sell. But the biggest success is really the um, performance of our different networks. So our different distribution networks have uh, performed differently during the year. And in the, third, in the fourth quarter, all distribution networks really um, carried uh, through and, and make um, uh, significant growth. On top of this, uh, I have to say that our um, EVO uh, tool and all our digital tools have been a, a high competitive advantage. And um, once, you know, once you get advisors starting to use a tool and, and being acquainted to it and, and, and liking it more and more, then uh, there's a stickiness to, um, to the advisors uh, using IE. And we do have a growth of number of advisors um, having a first-year uh, new, first new commission this year. So it really a combination of, of, of all things, not necessarily only the two new products. So, Mario, uh, to, con to, to conclude, we don't, we don't need to be number one in price to generate uh, such a growth. Did you talk about how much of the $71.7 million relates to the YRT and the, and the whole life product? Uh, sorry, the um, yeah, the whole problem. Yeah, we don't necessarily give the details of uh, of of the num you know the product mix uh, in detail, uh, but you know as you may imagine, it's been more um, more um, popular than the than the longer term guaranteed product. Okay, and is there something different about your YRT or your um, participating product from what's in the what's already in the marketplace. Is there any distinctive features to it? Well, those products are fairly complex to say one thing. So um, it, you know, each and every one of the advisors and MGAs and distribution network do their analysis, uh, and and they would uh, they would uh, favor or or prefer different features. In our specific case, our product is really tailored to our target market, and which is a mass in the mid-market and, and getting up in the mid-market. So I believe that in the in the market that we're looking for, looking at, and that we're aiming at, we do have some. Uh, we we certainly have some competitive advantage. Okay, and maybe going back to Jacques for a moment. Uh, going forward, when you have, let's say, you have excess mortality related to uh, COVID or what have you, um, that experience loss, of course, will now be part of your core earnings, as you expressed to us. But that will then be offset by the release of the reserve. So on a net basis, negative 
mortality experience that you would connect with COVID then wouldn't have an effect on your core earnings. Is that, is that correct? That's, uh, that's correct, Mario. Yeah, that's correct. But the thing is that we expect to have that extra mortality, though. So that, that's the starting point, but you're totally correct. Yeah, and I would, I would add, Mario, in 2021, up to 24 cents. So, the, I mean, it's like if the balance sheet can absorb up to 24 cents uh, COVID claims. Uh, if it's above that, there's an experience loss. If it's below that, then Jacques will need to decide what he, do with the, what he does with the extra provision. Now, there was a reference in your presentation to having reserves for up to five years. Maybe, maybe I misunderstood that. What was that reference to five years then of, that, of protection against excess? Okay. If you look, uh, mortality is a good example. We're saying 24 cents in 2021, so it's a fraction. It, it, the bulk, the bulk of the, the, the total reserve we put for COVID are for 2021, but we expect uh, for mortality and labs that there will be effect for as long as for five years. So there will be a declining reserve for other years as well. Got it. Makes sense to me. Thank you. Our next question comes from Paul Holden with CIBC World Markets. Please proceed. Hi, thanks. Good, good afternoon. Just want to ask for some help on expected profit growth in the individual insurance business and uh, asking for two reasons. One is obviously the major contributor of, uh, of earnings, but two, just given all the moving pieces we've already talked about on this call, the strong sales in 2020, uh, the reinsurance uh, agreement, the extra reserving you've had it. To me, it still it, it, it looks like 2021 should probably be an above-average year for expected profit growth. But maybe you can give us a little a uh, little help there. Okay, Jacques speaking, Paul, a really good question. Actually, I will expect it to be higher than 2020. If you recall, 2020, for, uh, we had the uh, PPI was a drag on uh, the expected profit growth of insurance. We don't have that, dry, that uh, drag certainly for 2021, so, uh, which is great. So it would be a, a, a good year. I don't have the number here but uh, it will be a good year. You will see that in Q1. Okay, that's helpful, thank you. And then my second question relates to IAS. And, you know, I guess it's, I, I guess it's something from, you know, some of the challenges we've had modeling that business um, and more as a new, uh, new contributor to earnings. You know, one of the um, metrics that I'm tracking is U.S. Uh, light vehicle sales. Um, which have been down year over year in recent months, but not down a lot and actually coming in better than consensus expectations. So I guess two questions related to that. One is, do you set your expected profit assumptions around forecasts for uh, U.S. Uh, light vehicle sales? And two, is, is that a good uh, benchmark for us to track to get a sense of where that business may be trending. Yeah, it's Denis here. Uh, certainly, the uh, car sales um, are an um, important indicator. New car sales, but uh, you, know, you also need to look at used car. I think I'm going to let Mike uh, describe a bit uh, his outlook of the car sales in North America. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Denis. Um, so, um, you know, 
I guess what I to your first question, uh, you know, do we use the sales car sales data to to uh, sort of help with our planning? The answer the answer is yes, but the reality is there's one component. There's you know other things we're we're going to look at in terms of you know our our plans, uh, marketing plans, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and um, you're right that the car sales um, uh, in the U.S. Uh, they they finished the year down 10%. Um, they finished 2020 down 10% for the year, but they've been trending up the last two quarters. The fourth quarter actually was plus 1%. So that uh, that um, you know uh, is, is a, a good you know let's say a, a bit of a recovery I guess. And you know I'm I'm optimistic that sort of uh, trend's going to continue in 2021 as the vaccines are rolling out in the U.S. Maybe the, the one thing that I would add, um, it's Denny here. Um, I mean, car dealers or entrepreneur, and we've seen in the past that uh, when sales go down, uh, they obviously uh, the FNI is office is also a source of profit for them. So I mean, it's not. I mean, obviously the car sales are an indicator, but also the fact that the penetration rate of the products is also a very important one. And, uh, and 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 car dealers are trying to protect their their profit margin by increasing penetration rate during uh, let's see uh, a time where car sales are down. That's another factor that seems to mitigate uh, any uh, let's say negative uh, uh, impact on sales. Yeah, that that was a strong trend we saw in the 20, 2007 to twenty 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 ten rather recession that the penetration rates went up during that period just uh, for the reason Denny described. The, the dealers had to make a living. All right, that's helpful. Thank you. That's all for me. As a reminder to register a question, please press the one four on your telephone. We have a question from Scott Chan with Canaccord Genuity. Please proceed. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, and we just going back to wealth management and, and just the solid um, net sales that we saw in, in SEG funds and mutual funds. Um, like, how much did that relate to kind of the industry, um, the improvement in the industry flows that we've been seeing, and how much does, uh, how much of that, particularly with SEG funds, related to kind of the COVID environment? Yeah, I think I'm going to ask uh, Rene to go first, and then uh, Sean second. Yeah, uh, thank you, Denis. Uh, as it relates to the seg to the seg fund, um, it, it's difficult to say what comes from pandemic, what comes from the market. Uh, you know, we've been uh, number one in net sales for so many years, and and we've gone from number three to number two now in terms of gross sales. Obviously, there's a lot more money, um, a lot more savings that individuals have, and um, you know they invest that money. Um, as I said, uh, with the life insurance uh, or individual insurance as well and the contribution of our distribution networks, it's the same distribution networks. So they all have performed uh, very well during the year, and this last quarter was, uh, was also uh, very significant. So difficult to, to, to answer specifically your question. There's a bit of a trend in the market. There's a bit of a, the effect of the pandemic. But there's also a lot that has to do with our di distribution network, our own success in the past that is uh, fueling this uh, success this year, as well as the uh, digital tools for, uh, um, for our uh, advisors. 
for SegFund's uh, business. Can you just elaborate on the digital tools comment? Yeah, actually, um, if an advisor can open a new contract and do uh, sub uh, subsequent uh, contribution to uh, to the account, and that can all be done fully online, fully digitized, if it's a new contract in less than nine minutes, and if it's a subsequent deposit almost in instantaneously. So that really sets us apart in terms of uh, the experience for the advisors. All of that linked with uh, FundServe, which is the, um, the uh, industry uh, system to, um, to flow to the MGA. Okay, that's helpful. Does that Thank an, you very much. Does that answer your question? Yeah, thanks. Yep. It does, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and this is uh, Sean, just to touch on the, uh, on the Clarington side. I mean, we saw a, we, a gradual return in sales uh, sort of pre-pandemic when there was the beginning of a trend. The pandemic sort of core obviously threw some disruption into it. But uh, in Q4, its markets are obviously strong. So it's like Renee said, it's hard to differentiate specifically what the difference was. But uh, um, we're definitely feeling the work we're putting in the affiliates and also kind of, uh, you know, re refreshing our shelf uh, on funds is definitely that work is, is starting to pay off. So uh, um, we've got a good outlook on it. Mr. Ricard, there are no further questions at this time. Please continue with your presentation or closing remarks. Thank, thanks a lot. Um, at some point during the call, I was a bit desperate that we had questions about sales because they were so good that uh, you know I expected to, to get some. And we had some questions on the sales side. Uh, amazing sales uh, during, during the quarter, and the momentum is, is great for 2021. Um, I, I think one, one takeaway of uh, our results this quarter is the many layers of protections that we were having on our balance sheet um, to withstand, uh, you know, any uh, unfavorable uh, situation uh, in, in 2021. The URR, um, you know, uh, we've uh, um, adjusted the URR down in advance of the CIE uh, 2021 the requirements. Uh, as, as was mentioned in the call, we've uh, basically proactively provisioned for an extra pandemic um, uncertainty with some conservatism in that. Our, our capital ratio is, is very, very strong. Uh, so, uh, you know, we are in a very good situation to withstand any unfavorable situation, and then we're, we're ready to grow. So that would be my, uh, my ending remarks. Thanks a lot. That does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you for your participation and ask that you please disconnect your line. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.